0: Watch this. No way! Joe's just promised this is going to be over in forty minutes to his wife, which I think is probably a smidge ambitious. Very. Um, for the podcast, um, let's do this properly. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cook Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills, and today. I think this guest is long, long, long overdue. <laughs> considering we are hundred and ninety odd episodes in, and I've known you pretty much since day dot. Joe McDonald, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Tom. Yes, long overdue. Good to be here.
0: Um, Joe is, is, is kind of a mythical creature in the world of golfing Twitter, I suppose. Uh, how do you describe yourself,
1: Joe? Uh, uh. An, an unabashed anomaly, an anomaly, an unabashed uh, fan of the game, particularly history and evolution of courses, and uh, visualizing ideas. I think I know that that doesn't sound like anything useful, but
0: visualizing ideas. What does that mean?
1: Um, <clears throat> so, uh, the current role I play with uh, CDP is is to help concepts uh, look sensible and compelling and get the the point across that's trying to be made by the architect so if there's a change to be made or some new hole or new course even if we can show it in a way that that the the people on the other end or the people let's say with the money uh, are going to sign it off because they say yes i get it i can see it mm. uh, they've got context I see what you're getting at. So, yes. And I the leaders, of course. And the members and the committees and whoever else that's in charge of saying yes so to you these things, So,
0: you get a plan from um, an architect yep. and you kind of do some computer wizardry and you get kind of a visual, computer generated 3D model that you can do all kinds of bells and whistles with.
1: That's the aim, yes, basically.
0: How on earth, before, I uh, will ask how on earth. Did you get to doing that? Which I'm, I'm about to ask. Just need to caveat that with this episode is not about you. And we can't make it all about you no. as much as I'd love to. No. Um, for those people that are listening that have read the title and are interested, this will be about the course evolution of Hoylake, which is slightly different from Royal Liverpool. I'm, most, I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, this is going to be accompanied by another another podcast with Stephen Proctor, which is kind of like the, the club evolution of Royal Liverpool. So that is where we are going, but we will get there. We need to first establish the background of this genius that is John McDonald. So how on earth do you get into doing visualizations and creation of graphics in this way? Personally, I love the use of genius. That's, uh,
1: <laughs> I'm liberal with it. In the, in the, mod- yeah, in the modern <laughs> sense, as in not. As, as in, uh, um, yes, I got into it um, through just pure love of the sport um, mm. love of the game. It's a, uh, it was a, a sort of passion. I was delving deep into archives of Hoylake, uh, where I've been a member for a long time since childhood. And because there's such a rich wealth of historical stuff on the course, uh, particularly in the hallways at the club and, uh, and multiple books written about the place by members and others, um, that there's so much to go on that it, it really got me down a rabbit hole. And, uh, and I was just loving it, and the stuff that really took my fancy was the how the course has changed mm. um, <clears throat> excuse me there are lots of lots of uh, sort of pre 1900 late 1800s Lynx courses particularly that had have, that have changed massively before they sort of settled yeah. you know uh, lots of sort of Hoylakes peers and those who came shortly afterwards uh, also went through massive amounts of change whilst the game was finding its way and fashions were changing quite quickly Um but Hoylake has continued right up to today to, mm. to, to change and evolve with the times and the equipment and tastes, fashions, whatever.
0: In kind of getting to where you are professionally, um, do you use, am uh, right, I right? in assuming you still use a lot of topographical information and you do drone surveys and you use all that information, which comes from a kind of a previous life, a life that you're still doing, which is the artwork. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the artwork and, and, you know, what that type of stuff that involves.
1: Uh, I was messing around with techniques to try and uh, visualize, once again, visualize ideas that I had um, to try and show things that it may have changed over the years that I found really interesting, uh, <clears throat> seeing how holes and courses have evolved. And I, I, I've always been a watercolourist uh, at school and, and after school I've, I've painted watercolour paints. My particular style was after somebody called Graham Dean, who's a local artist to where I live on the Wirral. And he uses uh, watercolor out of the tube straight onto the the paper. You know, it's wet on wet watercolor, very very loose style. And um, <clears throat> just through experimentation and modern tools, I found a way that I could simulate that style with digital watercolor brushes. Mm. Um, and combining that with 3D modelling and, like you say, the modern techniques of gathering LiDAR data and, and photogrammetry techniques with drones, we're able to combine the two so I can paint onto the surface of a of a 3D model, shine some extreme low light across the model surface. <laughs> extreme low light. And uh, you can make even the flattest course look like it's the Himalayas.
0: So yeah. <clears> there <throat> you go. And um, your artwork is um, it's not only absolutely stunning, by the way. I've got a piece hanging up in my... In my office, which is it's a, it's a, a piece that you sent me that's of the old course, and it sits above my sits above my monitor in my room. My my, my office has no windows, so whenever it's I'm in a really purpose. dark dungeon, <laughs> well, no, really, I'd love a window, but when I'm in a really dark dungeon, I just look up at that uh, that piece of art, and always makes me think of the one fiftieth. Actually, it makes me think of going back to, to St. Andrews. Your artwork's not only beautiful, but it's also factually like really accurate isn't it it's like
1: i hope so yeah we try to what we work with is is the most up-to-date possible sort of survey data that we can get hold of um the beauty of what i was doing it ties into the the hoy lake evolution stuff is that that with working um with lidar data and various other bits and bobs you can highlight um contours and features of the course that are perhaps no longer in play Hmm. um hoy lake be an example and I'm sure basically every course, particularly Golden Age courses and sort of pre-1900 will have all kinds of features that have been lost to changes in routing and whatnot. So footprints of bunkers and uh, and lost tea and grounds and yeah. greens
0: even. Because you can see that in the... So what's LiDAR mean? What does... LiDAR, LIDAR is, is
1: light detection and ranging. So it's a, uh, it's a it's a, a digital technique that's been around for a long, long time. It's a sensor that bursts. Um, it bursts. Uh, photons? Laser, it, yeah, photons. Um, lasers towards a, a target in a spray and then receives them back in the sensor.
0: Okay, like radar, but for light instead <clears throat> yes, of radio. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, even
1: I can understand that with my. Even you can, but there are certain types of lidar you can get. You can get penetrative, you know, ground penetrating mm. lidar, which archaeologists use and things like that. Oh, okay, but the lidar we're talking about the sort of standardly available stuff, like the stuff you got with your phone. Like modern phones have a lidar scanner on them. Um, oh, do they? Yeah, so they've got lidar sensor on Apple. So how they focus? iPhone twelve onwards. Uh, no, it's it, it's what's the I, purpose? It's of a different it?
0: thing. What's the purpose of it on a phone?
1: Well, it can be used for. Um, For for depth perception, um, you can make a model of your living room.
0: Bloody hell. Well, let's not get too far. No, okay. That's a different
1: story. Um,
0: So this sort of passion that you had for looking at, you know, the the magnificent hallways of Royal Liverpool Golf Club and the history that's there and and then combined with your kind of knowledge of of these LiDAR techniques and all the topographical information you get – Led you to kind of investigate the history of High Lake. Now, first of all, the Open, 151st Open's coming into Royal Liverpool this year. People are going to call it Royal Liverpool, Royal Liverpool, some people are going to call it High Lake. What's the difference?
1: Well, there is no difference really. It's local terminology, sandwich, you know it's it's the same sort of thing it's just that um it was the liverpool golf club the funny thing with this one is you know sandwich is at least in sandwich yeah <laughs> uh the liverpool golf club was uh was founded by uh, uh some gentry who uh named it after well it was the liverpool hunt club which was the existing uh, horse race course that was there in the very earliest days of the golf and um uh, there are a few members who are, who would press you on uh, on the, the fact that we weren't a golf course that was played over a race course. It just wasn't the case that the nine holes were laid out in a deliberate fashion to try and avoid the race course wherever possible, for obvious reasons. The posts yeah. were an issue and the hoof prints were an issue. So really, <clears throat> if you look at the original nine hole layout, it didn't um, it didn't really it didn't really use the, the race course um, track. Yeah. Per se, there was there was one hole that is that the, is that that the
0: rhetoric that it currently it used the race. It, well, it can the... it can
1: easily be confused. I think the case was they were trying to avoid it, um, but they cohabited for a couple of years. Um, mm. I think there were only there were only a handful of race meetings um, at a time where the golf was played there, and then it, it moved. I think they moved their base of operations, and um, <clears throat> and horse racing slightly fell out of favor uh, around that time. I mean, it continued on, but uh,
0: yeah, it yeah. wasn't as popular. So you've got this feature of um of Hoylate where you've got the internal of bounds off the the club's first open yeah. three, the third hole, the open routing. Um now I know that's something to do with the racetrack track, is it? Or not? Um uh so
1: out of bounds is a funny one it 's a big it's a big one. This could have a, a two hour podcast on its own
0: <laughs> um, well Tom Simpson said he liked out of bounds
1: well, absolutely but I should lead off by saying that if you don't like internal out of bounds that's fine that's totally your choice your prerogative to decide you do or don't like the thing, but it is there it's just there and it 's not going anywhere mm. that um internal out-of-bounds of the practice ground, Hoy Lake is going to stay indefinitely.
0: And Well, it's going to be. I think it's uh, it's all-tented village. Well, and it stuff is, for, like sure. for Yeah, yeah. For the open, so. Uh, it actually comes in very handy. But that, is that something to do with the racetrack? Was that where the track was, no, it was around a field. That?
1: So if you go right back to the very earliest days, pre, pre-golf, um, and you look at the old uh, what are called tithe maps, and that was how land was uh, divvied up into compartments where people would rent land from the yep. lord of the... Uh, of the land, who was at the time Lord Stanley of Alderley, and he would rent out parcels of land. Um, some famous names, but uh, you know John Ball, senior, who was mm. the proprietor of the Royal Hotel, which w- had, was built in late 1700s, and then he was the uh, the head dude at the uh, the Royal Hotel, and also <laughs> Love
0: that he's the head dude. Head
1: dude, and uh, and also uh, had a house which is just behind James Bledges' current abode. Uh, which was ploughed down in the 60s because it went into disrepair. James
0: Bledge, course manager of Liverpool. Course manager. Liverpool. And he lives just to kind of... Just off our 8th tee, okay. uh, in the back of the 6th
1: screen. Um, so yeah, uh, John Ball Senior was was living there, and he had some animals, uh, some livestock. Uh, also, was in charge, I think, in charge of the rabbit Warren, which was uh, sort of another source of income. Mm. So um, they
0: loved rabbits back in the day, didn't they? Rabbits were a
1: good source of income. You didn't have to do anything. Yeah, <laughs> You'd just shoot them. <laughs> and go get them. So uh, it was pelts and meat. Um, so rabbits and and racing and golf were coexisting for the first you know 10, 15, 20 years of the course's life.
0: And. Are there any holes that resemble so the the first nine holes that were laid out and and what do we know about? Um, the courses it was laid out initially and who by and Give us a brief synopsis.
1: Coming back to that one, because I glossed over the out-of-bounds because I got down a literal rabbit (laughs) hole. The the, the out-of-bounds is a funny one because Hoylake's uh, boundaries were quite fluid in the early days. They weren't totally settled. Housing was popping up at the same time as the Gulf uh, because it was a beachside town in that era. Um, the popularity of living near to the seaside was growing. This uh, Victorian sort of going to the seaside destination, good for the good for the lungs, the o- take the ozone. That stuff was really kicking off. Um, and of course, train travel. Um, so w- you know, the the boundaries were fluid and they were moving. Um, and the the outer bounds were at the time when they were when they were set. You know, and the course was set up initially. Out of bounds literally was out of bounds. It wasn't. You, it wasn't the land owned by the club. So it was a field, uh, particularly the one inside the racetrack. It was just a field. It was livestock. you know, it wasn't arable because it was, of course, Link's land, which isn't very good for, for mm. farming uh, foods and such. So, you know, it was out of bounds. And um, and then over time, what happened was the club managed to secure more land and actually lost some, but but in the process got, got land back. And uh, with the boundaries moving, what you had was decent holes that were part of the routing that they didn't want to sacrifice now that they'd acquired more land. So you had internal out of bounds popping up. Yeah. So we think, but we're not sure that the practice field inside the, the 1st and 16th. Uh, actually wasn't leased by the club in the very earliest days. So oh, okay. the outer bounds was just part and parcel of not being leased by the club. And then over time, whilst the club acquired that, and it became what we now know as the practice ground, of course, practice wasn't a thing in 1869. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't it, think it's a thing for some of us now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so we, we acquired land, and by virtue of that, uh, we, we had internal out bounds yeah. uh, Perhaps the most famous after the practice ground is the what was left of seven, Mm. Uh, the dowie hole, the famous, infamous dowie hole, and that was in old pictures, you can see it, the, the COP, uh, you know, these tall turf walls, yeah. which denoted uh, boundary edges, um, uh, I digress again, but the, the COPs we just found recently, Anthony Schonar, um, head trustee, has found information that said not only were the COPs used to uh, keep your livestock in, you know, within your field area, but also they might have been used as uh, flood defences. Oh really? Which makes a lot of sense because our our land down by where where current eight and nine are the far in yeah. the punch bowl hole, they um, that would flood quite regularly. It's mm. the lower lowest lying part of the course, and um, and it was really unfit for golf in the earliest days. Mm. Hence the reason why the sort of in the early days using around the race course seemed to be the best piece of land to, to start with. Yeah. So coming back to your question, <clears throat> the uh, so so the earliest um, layout of the course was uh, it was set up by. Um, James Muir Dowie was the club's first captain, but he was also the, the instigator of, the, of the, the club to get a club going. And um, he, by marriage, was uh, related to the Chambers family, who were uh, Scottish, you know, well-to-do folk mm. and, uh, and also well-embedded within the game of golf up in Scotland. So Chambers and George Morris, one of the older brothers of Tom Morris, uh, came down and, at the behest of uh, James Muir-Dowry and others to lay out nine holes across this piece of land, which they thought would be good for golf. Now, the crucial part is it's very, very flat. We all know this, you know, Hoylake and flat, they are synonymous, we know this. But um, the reason they chose this particular bit of land was, as I say, the rest of the sort of surrounding stuff, the dune land and and such, was unusable at the time, uh, not without huge amounts of finance and effort. Mm. And technology that just wasn't there in the day. You know, horses and carts and stuff wasn't going to get the job. Wasn't done. not cut the mustard. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so they were playing across what was ready to go land. Yeah. You know, I mean, ready to go in certain respects. But uh, early stories of the, the the hole that now plays as our field hole, which is thirteen um, for the members, the the green round there was surrounded by the rabbit scrapes. Yeah. And it was really heavily affected by rabbit scrapes. Over time, they managed to turn those into formalised bunkers or at least, you know, something that oh, resembled... Oh, really? The... That,
0: that badly yeah, damaged? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It was just holes everywhere. Um, so that was the sort of epicentre down where the bit of patch of Gorse is on our drive on the first, on the left by the fence, Mm. right over to where the the 13th Green is. That was absolutely pockmarked, full of rabbit scrapes. So that was the epicentre. So they used the the land around the practice field uh, because that was, it required the least effort. And in those days, because it was such a sort of early forage into golf in England the idea of pouring huge amounts of cash into something before yeah. it had really had a chance to to get going and and take root uh, would have been a, a a sort of mad investment really so so we've got our nine hole route in
0: and this was laid out roughly
1: 1860 well 1868 was the layout and then the
0: actual put into practice and open for play in 69 in 69 how yeah. long did we play nine holes before before things started to change,
1: uh, it, it, quite quickly
0: uh, it did take hold.
1: The game got popular, as you know, and uh, the club was starting to, to get bigger, grow with membership and interest. Uh, and as it did so, they realised that you know nine holes wasn't just wasn't enough. It was mm. popular. Let's get going. Let's do something expansive. So they looked at the the portion of land that where our current eighth is, and uh, seven and eight, in fact, in those t- those two holes running towards the the uh, the fence line. They. Uh, I think in the in the early iterations, it first was 12 holes and then quickly went to 18. But in the earliest iterations of 18 holes, it was crisscrossy and matte. Mm. I mean, it was real shoehorning nine holes into that small stretch, yeah. which now you've got two or three holes was occupied by almost
0: nine holes. Just just before you, you press on, yeah. I, I just want to check, are there any holes that exist in their entirety from the no. original nine?
1: The closest we have, we had a, our second green before it was changed recently was the the last sort of remaining green site from the original nine. Okay. Um, the closest we have to a hole that plays in the same direction to roughly the same green site from roughly the same tee is our 18th, the stand hole. Okay. Uh, the initial green was actually left to where it is today, but it basically played in the same mm. direction. So that's as close as we get.
0: Yeah, okay. So we get this rapid growth of the game in, in England. Obviously, it was already taken off quite heavily in in Scotland, and we get this growth of the game and... We developed 12 and, and 18. Yep. Um, what do we get in sort of well-known course architects at the time? What, what? How does that process work?
1: Well, it was pre-architecture as a, mm. as a term applied to golf. Uh, it didn't really exist at the time. So there are a lot of people who did great things who weren't necessarily credited in the way that we would today. Um, Jack Morris came down with his uncle and with Chambers as part of the the party his
0: uncle being old Tom
1: uh, no well yes but his uh, uncle being George who was oh. laying out the original line with yeah. Chambers uh, so Jack Morris came down with them and he uh, installed himself as the f- club's first pro and was there for I think about 60 something years oh wow uh, until he died um, vocational stuff it's serious uh <laughs> yeah, lifer and um he came down and was instrumental in in some of the club's early formation and carried on being instrumental right up to i think when he died in i can't remember when he died i think it was just pre world war 2 but the um yeah the, the sort of architecture as a term didn't really exist but he if if anybody should be credited with some of the early moves uh, of the of the course to move it to 18 and then um and then later, the, the, some very influential members, uh, names who you recognise, like Ball Hilton and uh, Jack Graham, were very instrumental in, in how the course evolved. Um, there was a, an improvement of the eight, first 18 holes quite quickly when people realised that it was lethal, when you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crisscrossing over people's heads. So they improved the course, which meant <clears throat> tinkering with the existing nine because mm. the existing nine and then this first iteration of 12 and 18 just involved tacking on holes yeah. to get you back to a certain place in the routing, whereas, <coughs> excuse me clear the frog um, <coughs> the, but the, the subsequent 18 made better use of the land and it started to get better and better and then as they approached the 1890s <coughs> they realised hang on, do you want on.
0: a drink, are you going to be okay you take <coughs> a I need a bit of coffee, okay. sorry I'm just, dying here hang on, you have a little drink I don't want you to die <coughs> on a podcast Sorry, it is the as morning. A former musician, I thought you'd be good at handling a microphone. <sighs>
1: a microphone is not the problem; it's just the <laughs> enormous amounts of phlegm in my throat. Um, the so the course evolved, and as we got into the eighteen nineties, the game was getting better and better. People's understanding of what makes for good holes was getting better. There were more influential players joining the club, and as such, uh, the, the club was thinking: Do we can we get an open here? Hmm and they would need to make certain changes to make the course better and worthy of an open. Part of that was moving the clubhouse. So, the, And this is where things get sticky with the routing. So in 1895, the clubhouse officially moved to where it is today, having been at the Royal Hotel.
0: Which is somewhere near the 18th Tee. That's correct. So so that hole that you say is, is, was somewhat like what... The original hole was. Yeah. That was from the clubhouse, the old clubhouse. Yes. And you play down the first, some something like the first,
1: which made a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, So that that at the time the Royal Hotel was pretty much. I mean, we're talking 1870s. The Royal Hotel was the last uh, house on that stretch, the last building on Stanley Road.
0: So uh, it it would now be like uh, the beginning of the street. Pretty much. (laughs) Uh,
1: So yeah, it was just an expansive coastline right down to Hilbury Point at the corner where currently there's a. um, uh, nursing home so yes in in those early days the clubhouse moved John Borsini was very unhappy um because obviously it took away a lot of his income um he, he was snubbed and uh, subsequently played I think he played his golf at Liso um but yeah the oh, left the club I think so I think he might have stayed but he, he his mm. nose was out of joint seriously out of joint so yeah. he played his golf at Liso um uh, Stephen Proctor will tell you. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, the the uh, the course routing that was the start of where things get a bit sticky with numbering and routing. Yeah. Um, so we moved the clubhouse. There were a couple of uh, other locations touted, but eventually that was decided upon as the place. And then what happened was initially in those early days uh, of the move, uh, I think they played an autumn meeting from, you know, the open routing that we play today. Hmm. We played seventeenth as a first. There there were a couple of comps played like that. Oh really. Uh, but it obviously didn't take. I don't think yeah. there's any club record of of why, but uh, it just didn't take, and they went back to the way it was. So actually, we played what was their second as our first.
0: It's a strange. I mean, I don't want to digress too much on this, but it is a strange one that the members of Raw Liverpool play what they would consider the course, finishing on, um, you know, the two par fours to finish, yeah. um, and then in the Open when the RNA come into town you switch it up. I suppose that's just for drama fishing on a par 5. Yeah, there uh, are several easy reasons to accommodate things.
1: Several reasons. Um mostly well it was touted by um Fred Hawtrey in the in the 50 well he was he was approached in 59. FW Hawtree was approached in 59 to give a, a full sort of plan of what he, you know, improvements, master plan basically. And one of those involved recommending for the 67 Open that that starting, you know, where it does today. But it was very close to happening but didn't. They decided no, we'll keep it the way it is. But um, they they realised that the, the the whole spectacle was getting bigger, crowd movement was becoming a problem, and also let's get down to brass tacks. It was a, it's a better finishing hole for the open. It's more you know the the yeah. sight of it is excellent.
0: So yeah. like it is right back in front of the clubhouse. Right in front, in front of the, the
1: clubhouse, club. and also the distance between the sixteenth green and the. Um, and the eighteenth hole was, uh, and the seventeenth tee and the eighteenth hole was—it was all a bit too close. Yeah. So um, as we know, they've got this amazing infrastructure now, where you can walk over these bridges, and yeah, you know, it's pretty incredible what they can do. But back in the day, where it was on foot, um, it was—they they could see it was an issue with crowd movement. Yeah. So, uh, so while they did in '67 decide to keep it that that way, in '06 it was decided, no, let's, you know. Let's yeah. do what we do today.
0: So we've got this course now that we've moved, we've moved the clubhouse. What starts yep. to change with the routing?
1: So this was in advance or, of the 1897 the open. Yeah. So the course, as I say, the boundaries were still, still in flux. Um, the what we lost going down Mel's Drive which is as you look at the clubhouse from the, the 16th Green, Mel's Drive is behind the clubhouse, mm. that long road that goes between uh, Hoylake yeah. and West Kirby and to your right let's say is West Kirby and there was a whole stretch of land there that was, the clubs it was open it was in play, there were a couple of holes that played down there and along the road mm. and we've got a hole called road because it played by the road yeah. all the way, um, which is now the second hole. The uh, At the time we lost that um, tract of land to housing and there are now houses on there mm. uh, but we gained we had the choice to gain other parts of land to try and make up for the lost land and at the time I don't think it was a direct sort of either or choice but there were two holes drawn up that would have gone out to Hillbury Point right at the corner by the nursing home mm-hmm. two holes actually planned and they would have gone out and back um so kind of Turnberry-esque yeah. vibes you know Pebble Beach on the clifftop stuff yeah uh which could have been extraordinary um but,
0: <laughs> but, but <laughs> more sensible minds prevailed <laughs> so, yeah,
1: somebody got cold feet i think it might have been because the land was so unusable at the time it yeah. was really tricky to to make any use of it uh even the the dune land that we use today was deemed you know it was just too rough
0: has that had to have a lot of work done to it to make well Cause it you talk about it
1: flooding quite a lot i don't think it
0: floods much now
1: not much now no, no. but um you know, in those days, the uh, the marum grasses hadn't plugged the the sand as much as it has today. So you had quite a lot of blown sand across the course, Yeah. Uh, and those dunes would have been much wilder yeah. and harder to use. Um, so really, it comes what down the to finances, dynamic,
0: think, dunes, the dynamic that, dunes, the ones
1: that move around. Exactly. So they hadn't had time to sort of stabilise as much as they do today. Um, but in those days, it would have been a big financial undertaking and quite risky mm. to say, okay, well do two holes over there. We'll have to pour a load of effort into it to try and make them usable for golf.
0: And this was prior to like actually moving a load of
1: earth. Oh, absolutely not. Horse and cart. I mean, madness. Yeah. It would have been extreme. So instead it was decided to use uh, the holes where we now got five and six. So we bought this patch of land, that sort of triangle of land that plays as five and six today. And that was, uh, we think Jack Graham was, was highly influential in the layout of those two holes, which are cool holes. Five particularly is a great hole. Um, yeah, so that, that was in advance of the 1897 Open. That, that actually, that patch of land, I should come back and say, uh, there was one uh, drawing done of a hole that, that recommended going up the old straight third, path five. We, we yeah. now play as a dog leg. we'll come to that later, but up the old straight path um, five third and then back again, straight in the same direction into the corner where the fifth green is today, but played from a T right next to the other green. Okay. So just go back and forth. And it was called Football Field. And the reason it was named football field was because part of the land that was taken was um, the rugby club, Hoy Lake Rugby Club, rugby football. Yeah. And uh, the captain was Harold Hilton.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, there
1: you go. <laughs> I wonder how they got that over the <laughs> line when they sold it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and apparently uh, Anthony Sherman was saying that that patch of land is some of the the best turf on, on the oh, course. Oh, really? By virtue, probably, of being well, a sports after, field in, looked some, after. in some way. Sadly, it's not really in play these days. Um, it's just short of the, the gorse on the left of three. Yeah. It doesn't really come into play unless you really squiff one, like I do regularly. So there
0: we go. <laughs> yeah. We're not here to play golf. We're here, no, to, think, we're we're here to think and talk about talk. it. Yeah. So we've kind of got the bare bones now. We've, got, we've kind of developed an 18-hole routine. We've got the land that's 8-9, current 8-9, or yeah. open 10 and 11. I'm going to get so confused. Oh, with all this I know. Stuff. I know.
1: I call them by the whole names. It's the only way to do it. I mean, you need a reference sheet with you when you're oh, talking know. about this stuff. But
0: it's all it's all very complicated. But sadly, most people only really know it in terms of open. I know. open routing and how they see it on which has a different routing this year. So. <laughs> what happens, you know, between 1900 and say 1930? What what kind of goes on in that period of time? I can't just we've got yeah. you know a strict time limit you've set yeah. with your with your wife. So we've got. What happens, you know, fast forward that sort of yeah. 30 years, what, what kind of develops with the course in that time?
1: Well, interesting, 1897, first Open that they held. Um, Stephen Proctor will go into all the competitions and stuff, but, you know, the amateur game was absolutely enormous at Hoylake. Uh, it really sprung...
0: The birth of amateur the, golf. Well, yeah, not the birth, yeah, well, but
1: like. sort of serious amateur, yeah. elite amateur play, uh, an international amateur. And um, anyway, so 1897, the first one, and then there were there was some talk from Simpson, Fowler... Others uh, who, who would say that really the Open should only be contested over uh, Hoylake and the Old Course. Really? It was held in that such revered. esteem. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but they're very similar. You know, like in terms of they share some They similar are options, not yeah. the most dramatic places when you look at them. They play, um, they play fairly flat, but the nuances of the of the way the ball can bounce and roll, and you you don't see that as much in other Lynx courses as perhaps you see at Royal Liverpool and, and the Old Course. Maybe. They do share some
1: similarities. The change in elevation, you know, clearly there isn't any, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas St Andrews has got far more consistently choppy land than, than Hoylake does. Um, but yeah, they, they were held in great regard. And from 1900 up until the First World War, uh, I think we hosted another couple of opens in short succession. And, the you know, the course was developing um, Well, holes were shifting, tees were being added. The game was developing in such a way that you know, Mm. obviously, we'd moved away from this idea of teeing up next to the hole, which was how it was in the very earliest days of the club, and now sort of these ideas of stretching the course, you know, being longer, uh, making the better use of the land. The dunes started to come into play with new tees being set up into the dunes and playing out of the dunes Mm. rather than trying to make a green site in the dunes. It was much more about playing out of them with a tee because it was easy to do. Around 1913 was quite a big change. Um, the, uh, the the hole that we know as the 10th, the D hole, which plays as a sort of right to left mm. dog leg up to a raised green. Wonderful golf hole. that. Great hole. Um, great green. Really mm. great green. You uh, treacherous. treacherous green, absolutely, no <laughs> need for bunkers on that green, really good uh, you You played over a strip of bunkers that were straight in front of the tee you know one hundred and fifty yards off the tee these three sisters' bunkers uh, which remained until the '50s, but you played straight over these into sort of oblivion, a blind drive, and then down the hill to a to a green that now is um, uh, is a sand scrape in front of the championship tee of our fifth hole.
0: Oh, right. So it went straight on. Yeah. So it was like a bowl
1: green, as you know, in in those days, like a bowl green was great because of lack of irrigation and those things. It would hold water and and get fertile and you could, you know, whatever else. So, um, yeah, it was a bowl green. Um, So you played a straight hole, which is a bit longer than today's, but it was just straight away down the hill and into a bowl green. Subsequently, they decided, how about we go a bit risky and we put a green on top of this dune? And you can actually see the dune in the in a, a sort of caricature sketch by uh, somebody in the Sphere and Tatler from about 1906, I think it was. It was those News of the World uh, showing you how the last round played out. They're great, great pictures, hand-drawn things. Yeah. And you can just see the dune to the left of the tenth in this picture, which would then go on to be used as the uh, as the green, the green in 1913. So that was quite cool. Uh, Do we
0: know who was in in charge of that? It's hard
1: to believe that Harry Colt, who was a prolific amateur player at the time and visited Hoylake lots and lots. Uh, Hard to believe that he he didn't have a part to play considering his later work at the club and how it resembled that. But there's no fixed evidence. We thought we'd found some stuff the other day. Jasper, our mutual friend, had stumbled upon some stuff research he was doing and we thought we had a Colt reference, but it wasn't. Uh, so we we have to credit Jack Graham and um, and other members for mm. for that change, which is now become in
0: terms of all this. Is it or is it all minute books? You know how because this yeah. is like you have a substantial amount of knowledge, and the club has a substantial amount of knowledge of, of these changes. Yeah, is it minute books? Because yeah. we're not even anywhere near the era, which I hope we're going to go on to shortly. Of you know the RAF photos and all that stuff that mm-hmm. we can use. I mean, photography was probably still... Course photography was still blossoming around about that time. So It was
1: the early days. Um, The the club has got comprehensive records, as you say, minute books. Uh, I don't think it's light reading. Yeah, (laughs) Um, no. uh, But uh, the the, the best record of the course's evolution was released by Anthony Schoen in conjunction with Richard Latham. and that is what I consider the best record of mm. the club, the course's evolution that we have. Uh, but it's not absolute. And, and he would tell you this, Anthony, it loves it. I was with him the other day, poring over some new stuff that we'd found um, all the time. We're finding new stuff yeah. in this digital age where just by virtue of searching and being uh, patient, you can uncover new stuff. that,
0: Like newspaper clippings, newspaper and, clippings yeah. pictures, you know,
1: this sort of thing. And sometimes it's fun to come across pictures that corroborate uh, a hunch yeah um stuff that may have been referenced in text maybe in passing
0: well you've done us a little thing that we're gonna add on to this podcast a little 10 minute vignette video of a hunch that you had that um will will add to the show notes i mean it truly was exceptional when you sent that across so i was like this is nerdery at its absolute oh, no. finest yes um, <laughs> but please do check out the show notes for this little video that joe has made on on the 12th which will which will go on to shortly but um yeah, it's, it's amazing when you get these little, little yeah. hunches and they work out to be true.
1: It's lovely. It's a light bulb moment. Um, we had a similar one when the, the uh, new hole that we have now, uh, the little eye hole, which was formerly
0: Rushes. Um, when did they change that name, by the way? Because we were calling it Rushes in, in our film, which we made like two years ago. Yeah. They just finished it and we called it the Rushes. Yeah, it's about a year ago now, I think. Oh, it right, was so it's not-
1: decided that I think in the, the days when the Dowie was changed into what we have today from its old, you know, the, the slightly mean... Um, Setup up of the hole which had out-of-bounds and everything else. Yeah. When that was changed, Dowie was kept. And there were a lot of members who felt that because the hole had changed so much that keeping Dowie wasn't the right thing to do and we should have come up with another name. In this respect, because the hole has been so changed, flipped 180 and plays in a totally different way that it was finally decided to retire the name rushes and oh,
0: okay. take and And with Any significance to Little Eye?
1: Yes, Little Eye is the, the, there are three islands, the main island that you can see behind the hole is called Hillbury, and that is actually the, the name of the 12th hole uh, for sensible reasons. Yeah. And then you have middle eye and little eye, which ho- I hope are self-explanatory. <laughs> and, uh, yes, middle eye wouldn't have been <laughs> wouldn't have quite <laughs> conveyed the message. Whereas little eye, yes, because it's a little hole. Uh, it's devilish and, uh, and it sits behind the green.
0: Sorry. Okay. Wonderful. D- uh, digression sorted. Yeah. So let's, let's rewind okay. slightly. Rewind. So the twenties,
1: so- the twenties is where it gets funky because, um, you know, th- things were progressing nicely in the tens. Uh, the war came, world war one, uh, Everything stopped. So everything stopped in World War One and mm. um, golf was, on yeah, was put on the back burner. But then when things got going again, uh, it was the first record we have of an architect being being consulted, uh, mm. a professional. So um, Harry Colt was brought in to do his thing and it started in 1923 and would carry on until the Second World War. And we're unsure of whether he continued to advise post-war, but he certainly didn't do any work on the mm. the course post-war. I don't think he did work anywhere post-war. I'm not sure about that, though. Adam Lawrence may know yeah. differently. But um, yeah, so Harry Colt was brought in in '23. And he, he put up a put together a master plan for the whole course, and um, many of the recommendations w- were put into play. Mm. And some of the key changes were the, um, the the eighth hole, the par five that plays out to the far boundary yeah. of the property. Um, before I should note that before Harry Colt came along and before we secured the boundaries of the club actually that 8th hole where 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 we play the green now you, it was open beyond that so there was more dune land beyond that oh, okay. that could have been brought into the course it's could housing have,
0: now isn't it yeah it's
1: housing yeah Uh, but yeah before that another example of where the boundaries were they were finally set but could have gone even further yeah um so anyway harry colt recommended that what was the old eighth um green which was tucked right into the core on the left side in the lower lying ground which Mm. of course was another example of a green site that would take water rather than repel it Um, which i think
0: is more important in lynx golf like it's so interesting hearing you talk about this because in parkland golf you'd think the opposite, it's like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to retain too much Absolutely, water. where it's but abundant. But Golf is kind of, yeah, we need to get these greens low.
1: Totally, to try and hold the stuff, because we're, I think Hoylake Lake sits on many tens of feet of sand. It might mm-hmm. be 100 feet of sand, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it drains very well, uh, particularly with the drainage system that's in there and has been used since... Pre 1900, um, but Harry Colt was at the time was uh, blazing a trail for how to uh, create greens mm. that would retain water that sat on a raised portion of land. Uh, and that, that technique has worked for many, many years, but sadly it's run its course because uh, you take somewhere like Portrush, for example, that had to have a lot of rebuild of um, yeah. greens. They were cult greens. And there was a technique he used which involved this sort of using a semi-porous, um, like clayish mixture. Yeah, sand
0: on clay, wasn't it, to try and retain some water. Try and some some retain water. some
1: water. But over time and footfall and just entropy, whatever happens, it compacts the ground and actually it holds too much water. Yeah. So in certain cases, greens need rebuilding to mm. try and get rid of that. But at the time it was incredible. Incredible, and obviously lasted a century uh, in good shape. So yeah, he was—he did the eighth hole, and he did the uh, an entirely new eleventh hole, Alps, uh, mm. which used to play as a blind hole, but at the time, um, blind stuff was becoming deeply unpopular. People mm. were hating blind shots. Um, so yeah, he, he uh, redid the eleventh and teed off the twelfth from a completely different tee, and uh, you know, redid the twelfth Hilbury hole. And uh, and the thirteenth. Subsequently, a few years later, he was invited back to to rebuild the Rushes Hole. Mm. Um, And then he also moved the seventeenth green, which was absolutely inspired. Uh, It was always close to the road, but he moved it another sort of eighty yards further down the road, and completely set up the bunkering in a way such that it it became what was, I think, the best flat land, architected hole.
0: Really? Yeah, that good.
1: So so good. Just flatland architecture one on one. Well. There's no getting around it. The the peril of the outer bounds beyond the green because it was right next to the pavement yeah. and the road of the time. Um, there's no getting away from it. That was what made the essence of the hole. Mm. Uh, subsequently, in '99, I think it was Donald Steele was given the remit to move move the green away from the from the road because it was dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so in advance of the Open, there were fears that. Uh, you know that it would cause problems legal yeah. and otherwise so it was uh, decided to move the, the green away from the road sadly there's no record of of us the club being asked to do it it was uh, the club decided preemptively that uh, it could become a problem. So they did it anyway. So it wasn't oh, okay. not, not like anyone was strong-armed into it, but it was just slightly fearful. Yeah.
0: Foreboding. Yeah.
1: So uh, it's a shame. Oh, we lost, a shame we lost uh, quite what was a very, very special hole. And that was in my time of playing. So I remember the old oh, one very, really? well, very, oh, wow. very well. What a match play hole. I mean, so good, but I have to say there's nothing like seeing a ball hit tarmac
0: <laughs> oh, oh it bounces doesn't oh it? wow oh wow everything the e- elasticity of the ball really really shows itself when it hits tarmac
1: i have played in a tuesday night stable food with my dad in about 1998 and watched the ball go over the road and go under a car and get spat out back onto the course oh nice and this is in the days of you know belata 90 and when and you, there, you go yeah. look
0: at the ball <laughs>
1: mangled but yeah, uh, yeah, unputtable, unputtable after that but yeah
0: great um, days. With the exception of a, a a few little uh you know like you say there were some some poetry movements and things would the Harry Colt routing be and obviously the exception of the flip of the little eye that the old rushes hmm. uh your fifteenth open seventeen would you are we recognizing the Harry Colt course in kind of its bare bones as it is today or is it much more changed
1: i think it's it's close uh I think the course routing sort of settled. We got in 59, as I said earlier, Fred Hawtree was consulted and he came in and said, what we need to do is uh, we're going to amalgamate the old straight third and the old fourth into a single hole, which we have today, which is our long third. Mm. And it plays as that sort of arcing, hooking dogleg left. Um, The the green of that has subsequently been changed by Donald Steele as part of a lengthening process to move the, um, because we moved the tee shorter. Mm. Uh, But the the, uh, FW Hawtree 60s changes in advance of the 67 Open involved that. So they merged these two holes. He built a new par three, which we play today called New, and it's the fourth hole. And that's the first par three on the course. Mm. And the beauty is that that gets you into the better yeah, it's the more 11, exciting. Three, great par three, really, really good. It sits in the shadow of the eleventh, which is has got the glamour of the um, of the uh, the the beach side and stuff. Yeah. But uh, but the reality is the fourth is as good i think as a, yeah, as a, a sparkling par three that super one. super old. and uh, and that was a bit of genius because really the previous par three that it that it um, usurped or whatever you want to call it was uh, slightly uninspiring it had lost its teeth really it's, yeah. it was called cop and it had a cop in front of the green and a strip bunker i mean subsequently had lots more bunkers added around it and that sort of thing but in the earliest days it was just a big old rectangular victorian green that played over a trench and a turf wall and it didn't have much going for it. And especially after they moved the tee, because it used to play out of bounds on the left. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway.
0: Yeah, well, we've go. we got, we kind of, you know, we got to where we, kind of roughly where we are today. There's been a few changes. Um, I think the modern changes are fairly well covered. So we don't want to go too into depth around, you know, what's yeah. been done recently and, and, and sort of in the 90s. What I do want to know, because I know, again, we're, You put these time limits on me, I could go for another hour, which is why we're skipping over 70 years of of (laughs) history. Um, But I'd just like to know um, tell me a little bit about how you dig out all this stuff in terms of the the old, I mean, RAF aerials and the importance of all that sort of imagery in the last sort of five, six, seven minutes. um, How you use all that to kind of discover all this stuff that you get.
1: Aerial images, there's no, uh, no doubt about it, the, the sort of prevalence of aer- aerial imagery and the archives now being digitised and being opened to people, architects, anybody who's seriously interested, um, has, has revolutionised how we see courses, particularly of this age, of, of a certain um, maturity. Uh, what I particularly like about Hoylake is that we've got a 30s aerial. Um, there are lots of 40s. That's rare, isn't it? It is rare. Anything before the World War II uh, spate of aerial stuff is is quite a rarity, uh, particularly anything that's good, you know, yeah, usable. usable yeah. This is a bit small, this one we have. It's up on the wall in the club upstairs. And um, we took a scan of it and I tried to do what I could to make it better um, you know smooth it out get rid of some of the, um, the sort of noise in it
0: like, one of the, like when you, in one of those movies where they're like enhanced, yeah, enhance, enhanced. <laughs> exactly that's
1: becoming closer and closer to Isn't reality it? Know, it used to be scoffed at but now it's getting yeah. close but not with aerials there's nothing you can do with this anyway So well, there's
0: uh, no detail what you're going to do with no, it no exactly
1: but looking back over the years what you see from this 30s aerial is that these white marks that can sometimes look just like a blemish or a lens flare or whatever else uh, turns out that they really are sand. <laughs> yeah. And you get these enormous long strips of sand, so you can see right round the outside of the practice ground, the field is just this almost unbroken ring of sand. Really? And what happened was with the trenches that we were talking about, where you next to cop turf mm. walls that keeps your you know maybe flood defense maybe a sort of wall to keep your cattle in in your field um actually produce these trenches which of course where the mud has come from you yeah, know like
0: borrow pits really. borrow pit
1: basically and in the early days as we said there was no sort of plugging of the, the ground it was the, the blown sand was quite an issue so it would just be swept across the course with any kind of wind and these would collect sand in them so they became these sort of natural bunkers Mm. Um, and you know, some of them were over time filled in others were, were kept going as a more long lasting feature. And then as the fashion for sort of strip bunkers waned, um, they became separated into these strings of separate bunkers. Mm. And you can just see the evolution of these bunkers over the years, starting with this thirties stuff and going right through to '60s, 70s and just seeing how the, the bunkering has become more sparse, um, bunker shapes, styles, everything else has changed. And, and it's gone in hand in hand with equipment and fashions. And it's it's just amazing to look back at what they did in the old days, mm. what they considered a uh, a brutal challenge. You know, there's quite a sort of low turf wall uh, right through to now being these sort of huge towering uh, stacked sod faces, yeah. which are taller than your head. And, you know, modern equipment has made us have to do that.
0: It's very strange. We talk about it. Plug for the cookie jar film on Hoyleck. We mm-hmm. talk about it in the Hoy Lake film that we did a couple of years back now, where I think Royal Liverpool has been a golf club that has never been afraid to adapt, which I think is one of, one of its strengths really, like you say, it was, it was on a fairly flat bit of land and they would continue to be progressive and change and try and make it as good as it can be. And I think it's probably the strength of the club is that it did always adapt and try and stay ahead of advances of technology and never really just stayed in the, in the past and think, yeah, this is just what we are. It's just kind of.
1: No. Never rested. I, I think there's, it's ambitious, I think, and it's to be commended. Um, as we know, ev- not every change that's made to a club makes it better. Um, there are inarguable changes that have happened to Hoylake that I, I would say have made it better. Uh, Bernard Darwin famously did not like um, Harry Colt's change to the 12th. Really, Lamented the loss of the old 12th. Um, but subsequently, it's a bloody great hole. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the best on the course. So, you know, with time, sometimes these, the, the dust settles and the naysayers sort of disappear into the ether and what's left is a, is a great legacy. Uh, it's not always the case though. You know, not every change is, is successful. Um, but I think we give them time. We let them settle and then go to mm. it again. If club finances allow, we just keep improving, keep looking at. As a parting gift,
0: Joe, you, uh, you're a Hoylake man and boy. Um, I take you're going to be watching the Open, of course. Um, with anyone who's going to go there, anyone's mm. lucky enough to visit, where where's the best? Where's the place to go and set yourself up, or are you walking the course with a group? What are you doing? It
1: depends on what your style is. Are you a sort of walk and talk person, or are you sitting you can on the course, or are you a <laughs> yeah exactly? <laughs> featured holes coverage <laughs> precisely? Are you in the tower? Um, I would say, having seen the new stand, the, the the stand at the back of the new Little Eye Hole. There is no getting away from it. That is going to be the place to be. It's a little bit like the, the back of the Eden Green at uh, the old course last year. Yeah, where you can uh, see yeah, hot, lots
0: of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, and- hot
1: property. If you can get to the top of that stand in the corner, you've got behind you, you've got extraordinary views. You've got the, you know, the hole, which if the wind blows, is going to cause... Chaos. Yeah. Um, you've got to look down the 18th tee straight over the top of the big players who are coming off this new back tee, which makes the hole 600 plus. Um, and you've got to look down arguably the best hole on the course, which is the 12th. Yeah. So and and of course the new tee on the um, on the 13th, which is also 600 plus.
0: And I think correct me if I'm wrong I think you'll have the sun on your face all day there I, I would
1: say so cream up good yeah. style take a picnic don't <laughs> yeah. leave your seat otherwise you won't get it back
0: yeah, uh, yeah. take a bottle to win take a bottle yeah exactly. Joe <laughs> McDonnell, you've been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on the pod um, if you didn't restrict these absolutely ludicrous time restraints on us I think we could have gone for hours certainly but could thank you very much indeed nice one Tom pleasure do you want to say adios adios watch
1: this